right, welcome to another episode of Mormon Expression. I'm going to be your host tonight, Tom Perry, and I'm also joined by one of my good buddies, John Larson. What's up, John? Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me, man. Appreciate it. Um, I'm also very honored and uh, and kind of excited to have on our guest tonight, Levi Peterson. I guess I should say Professor Levi Peterson, who is a Mormon biographer, essayist, fictionist, and he's best known for his book, The Backslider, and also for his biography on Juanita Brooks. I should say his award-winning book on Juanita Brooks. And he's also an emeritus professor of English at Weber State University. And he's edited Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought from 2004 to 2008. And I also should mention for the, those of you podcast fans out there, he's also interviewed by John DeLynn or AKA Mormon Stories back in 2007. And that interview, I, I personally highly recommend. Um, so Levi, or Professor Peterson, welcome to the show tonight. <laughs> Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. Um, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on originally, Levi, is uh, a couple, I guess it was just last month. Is that right, John? When we had a discussion on the backslider? Yeah, it was um, It was in uh, January, just like the second week of January. Yeah, we we talked about having a book club, kind of a series thing, a monthly book club uh, podcast. And John had mentioned that uh, the book that he wanted to start off with was The Backslider, your book. And he, he's told me multiple times that's one of his favorite books. Is that right? I don't want to put words in your mouth when you're right here, man. Yeah, when you think about Mormon literature, there's, there's um, of course, not that much to choose from, but the best by far and away. Um, and, you know, like I said in the uh, book club, I think it stands on its own outside of Mormon literature um, is, is the, ba- the Backslider, which is probably as much about Utah culture and Southern Utah culture as it is about Mormonism. And uh, and Levi, you, you'd mentioned that you'd actually listened to that uh, our our book club podcast. Is that right? Right. And and you thought it was terrible, or you thought it was okay? Oh, I was really <laughs> interested. One of your one of the commentators, a young woman, even noted how many different words my character Frank Lindem or terms knew for the for masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, that's. That that young woman read that novel rather closely, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the the the, the book. Um, you know, I I have roots that go back to San Pete County, Ephraim and Manti, and and the the book just speaks to me so much from the, those old timers from down there and how they how they think and how they process the world. Well, you see, I grew up in a uh, Mormon town in northern Arizona, Snowflake. Uh, and even uh-huh. though it's in Arizona, it has an awfully lot in common with little Mormon towns in Utah and Idaho. And uh, uh, I used to travel from uh, Provo to Snowflake when I was in college and uh, pass through uh, Garfield County and uh, Panguitch and that, that uh, Kanab and that area down there and thought uh, this would be a good place to grow up. So I decided to set a novel down there. That's what I I uh, actually uh, roamed about uh, Garfield County. Uh, I subscribed to the Garfield County News for five years uh, as background to uh, writing the backslider so that uh, I, I tried to get my uh, setting and uh, local color uh, uh, realistically, as, as realistically as I could. 
um, you know, I've talked to friends who grew up in the area, and, and they, they they say the same thing. So um, now it was said in the in the the forties, or it's 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 set way back in time, isn't it? What, what, well, what's the era? Mid the mid nineteen fifties. There's actually okay. uh, one reference that lets you date it. Uh, there was an uh, an airplane crashed in the Grand uh, uh, the airliner crashed in the Grand Canyon. I think that was nineteen fifty six, and that was referred to in one of the conversations in the book. Otherwise, I didn't I didn't peg down a date on it, but that was that lets you do it night mid 1950s so what is it about that time that um uh, compelled you to set it then well i was 19 i wanted to even though the novel's about me i wanted to i wanted to be accurate you know i wanted to take a part of the world i knew uh, so uh the uh, I don't know. I don't suppose it matters too much when it was set. Uh, the, you know, fiction has uh, kind of a universal appeal. I think, regardless of the era it's set in. Well, the 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 reason I think that's interesting is because the book still seems timeless to me. You know, when when I was reading it this last time, and I ran onto that again. You know, that it was it was dated. He talked about his father dying. Um, I was almost struck aback because. It, to me, it could play today just as well as it played at that time. So those themes that that you're dealing with haven't really changed. Yeah, well, the the landscape is a lot the same down in that country. Uh, the uh, for one thing, another thing, uh, like it or not, uh, rural Mormons are quite a bit the same now as they used to be. And uh, oh, wow. There have been some complaint, uh, justified, I suppose, that my main characters are my chief Mormon characters, Frank and his mother, and uh, maybe several others are uh, grotesque, or uh, particularly if you're looking at Jeremy, that they aren't typical Mormons, and that's true, uh, as uh, Frank himself recognizes, but I think a lot of those subsidiary secondary uh, characters in the book you can you can still find them in the uh, rural mormon world uh, even today grew up with so many mormon rural mormons around me and uh, stayed in touch with so many of them it just seemed like to me that uh, it was natural to portray them so let's talk a, a second about um the cowboy Jesus, um, you know, I, I I think that, you know, a lot of the 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 people who we had listened to and read it, and a lot of the feedback I got, um, talked about how that was so moving and so touching for them. So, I I, I want to kind of probe your your thoughts a little bit about um, your interpretation of the cowboy Jesus. Well, I. Uh thought all along, long before I even settled down to writing the chapters of the novel, that I, I was going to have a character uh, who was letting his sins burden him so deeply and heavily that he, uh, he, he was considering doing away with himself and, uh, ritualistically, you know, via the the, the old Mormon system of blood atonement, and 
I, I wanted to save him. That was going to be the climax of the novel. Um, so the suspense of the novel would be the question whether he would be saved. And uh, and I assumed from the start that uh, that he, some kind of uh, he, he would undergo some kind of dramatic change. Uh, it was going. It would be either psychological change. I mean, coming from within his own psyche, or, or it, uh, given the kind of Mormon he was, it, it could be a vision. And uh, while modern Mormons don't uh, have visions much, they they certainly believe in them. And the further back in time you go, the more Latter-day Saints who believed in vision, my my own relatives did, and some some of them still do. Uh, uh, but it had to be uh, what kind of saving vision uh, or or epiphany uh, Frank would have. I I, I I I didn't. I was at a loss to know. I, I, I that's what I wanted, but I got to thinking. Uh, the stereotypical vision of Jesus and God coming down to Joseph Smith. You know, you have the paintings of Joseph kneeling in the woods, and and there uh, God the Father and God, God the Son, uh, transcendently dressed in white and hovering above the ground. I, I, I that, that wouldn't have been a vision that fit my rough hewn Frank Wyndham. And I uh, had the, actually was into the final chapter of the book in my writing, uh, writing a f- fairly advanced draft uh, before it occurred to me to that the cow uh, to use the cowboy Jesus. Now the cowboy Jesus is a kind of highly coincidental figure in the novel up to that point. Uh, early in the first chapter, in fact, Mary Ann, who's just barely become acquainted with Frank, muses on the this little daydream she has that she, she meets. Uh, she's in the woods and she meets uh, a man on horseback, and it turns out to be Jesus. And he says, "You're lost, and the, but uh, now you're found." And so. Uh, she repeats that a couple of times in the in the uh, book. This little whimsy, this little fancy, and that's what turns into Frank's vision. Uh, it occurred to me that uh, well, that kind of an epiphany a guy like Frank might really have. Now he's had visions before, but they've been the negative ones that convinced him he was utterly evil and that God intended to punish him. But uh, this vision that turns him around and makes him feel saved, and that was the point of it, of course, was to allow Frank to to take a, uh, advantage of the uh, Christian doctrine of atonement, of forgiveness, of grace. Uh, Mormons don't quite like to believe in free grace. They they think you got to buy your grace tickets by good works. That's where they stand, but... Uh, uh, I suppose uh, critics have said Frank's Frank's uh, Jesus is a is a, a mainline Protestant Jesus, and there may be some truth to that. Though that wasn't in my 
I wasn't trying to take a theological stand when I conceived of that kind of Jesus, but I, but it, it uh, needed to be somebody that uh, would fit Frank's mentality and uh, and give Frank the kind of advice he needed, which was to, well, for example, that Mary Ann's one hell of a good woman, and uh, yeah, enjoy her. So uh, the uh, that, that's where the cowboy Jesus came from. It, but isn't it also true, Levi, that uh, one of the well, one of the higher criticisms that you usually get for this book, with as far as the cowboy Jesus goes, is the fact that he smokes, and how and how <laughs> irreverent that kind of portrayal is. Yeah. Well, also <laughs> the vision occurs when Frank's at the urinal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that too. urinal. I, that's that's <laughs> yeah, that uh, that bothers. A lot of people <laughs> bothers, bothers my good friend at BYU, Richard Krakoff, now retired professor down there, who wrote uh, about you know, the, well, my my God, my Jesus wasn't a Mormon Jesus. At any rate. <laughs> well, that that so, leads uh, to my my uh, next question. So it's been has it been twenty five years, or has it been more than that since the book came out? It was published in 1986, so uh, that's I guess yeah. it is 25. So, so how, how has it years. how has it been received? How has it been accepted? You know, my my fear is that be, because it pushes boundaries a little bit like that, that it would have been ignored by the the a lot of the mainstream uh, Mormons. How has it been received? Well, the it is it, never sold on the scale that. Uh, popular Mormon novels sell on uh, the uh, even when it was first out. Uh, the uh, we're talking in terms of thousands of copies rather than tens or tens of thousands of copies of it sold. It, however, it is still in print and has never been out of print, and it's existed in a a. Uh, the first slick cover trade paperback, uh, a nice one, and then that one was photographically duplicated and sold as a $5, $6 paperback book. And that's sold and sold and sold. That's the large majority of the copies have been that one. And then recently, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Maybe it's been a little bit longer than that. Signature book went, put it out in a, a totally new edition with uh, hardback and illustrations, kind of fancy. It's a fairly expensive book, but it's still around and and it still say uh, sells. And and I, I get I not an awfully lot of letters, but uh, I suppose one or. Uh, uh, Nearly one a month uh, on from somebody that's just discovered it, uh, or finally got around to reading it, and wants to talk to me about it. So, and I answer those letters, and uh, the that's enheartening. So I've I've, I've never felt like I've I have a, a great fame, but uh, <laughs> enheartening that people people keep reading it. 
Has, have they ever picked it up at BYU? Has any English professor down there ever uh, ever used it? Well, Gene England used it regularly till he died. But of course, Gene was in trouble with the brethren down there, uh, or with the he got in trouble with the brother McConkie and kind of got squeezed out at BYU. But as long as he was there, well, and then when he went over to USV, uh, Utah Valley. Uh, he took it with him, uh, had it in his class. So, yeah, he did uh, uh, at BYU. Uh, it uh, uh been used in other Utah universities. It's been used out of state in two, at least two different, uh, two out of state, two other states I know of universities. Uh, and uh, a, f- a friend of mine back east, he's a Gentile friend in Indiana, had it. For an honors class, it wasn't a big class. There were about ten or twelve students, but none of them were Mormon. Oh. But uh, they liked it, and uh, they they particularly commented on the effectiveness of the vision of the cowboy Jesus. <laughs> uh, so I, it it seems to have a, uh, that uh, vision. Incidentally, uh, has struck some people as. A scripture, a, a little uh, eerie almost, that uh, more than one person has written to me saying, uh, that I I just, I, I read it seven times, somebody, a woman told me, and couldn't get enough of it. Wow. Back over it, and uh, as if it had really, really happened. Uh, a woman at a party one night told me that when she read it, it uh, for the first time gave her some hope for her father who had committed suicide. She decided he was going to be damned, and, uh, but decided to, well, maybe not, you know, having read the backslider. Um, uh, a cousin of mine gave it to a couple of his backsliding friends, and <laughs> it, they became start going to church again. I had no idea that it would have that kind of effect. Uh, the, the, uh, I thought, in fact, it'd do the opposite. But well, one of the one of the main themes in the book, Levi, is is kind of a guilt or remorse or even kind of a depression. Did you, when you were writing the book, were you kind of writing from your own personal experience, or just were you just kind of diving into? A, an imaginary kind of landscape there. Well, I uh, guilt is the driving force in Frank's conflict, and the resolu- and the climax, the resolution of the conflict is that that he he gets past his guilt. Uh, so yeah, guilt guilt's a big thing with me. Uh, 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 people have told me that that's all you write about, Levi. You. you <laughs> Is, or that's driving all your conflicts, and there's some truth to that. Not entirely, but uh, I just finished a short story last week, and, and, I, and uh, there it is again, same old theme, guilt driving it. And, uh, the, I, I think I inherited a very healthy dose of guilt from my, my the environment I grew up in, uh, I, I've done a lot of thinking about where that came from, and uh, uh, and it's still there. I 
I'm I'm willing to feel guilty about almost anything. The deterioration of the environment and the and the uh, uh, global warming and the the starvation in Africa. I, you name it, I feel guilty about it. So <laughs> I I, uh, I I have used it in my fiction. Well, it's something that resonates with me. I, I know that was a strong underpinning of my um, Mormon upbringing. So um, <clears throat> that's where I find the redemptive quality of the book, you know, under under so much of what what I think is ever present in a negative way in our culture is its really redeeming message and what makes it such a great uh, a great influence. You know, my uh, mother in her old age, my wife and I, when we were still living in Ogden, we we took our turn at having mother, my mother, come and stay with us when she was too old to live alone, and she she'd be with us six weeks in the spring and. And uh, uh, it was pleasant having her, and and uh, she she entertained herself all day long, uh, crocheting afghans out of heavy duty wool uh, yarn, and uh, it kind of helped her keep her sanity, uh, being able to make afghans. But on Sunday, because Making Afghans was her work, her weekly work. She couldn't make. She deprived herself of the pleasure of of crocheting Afghans. And Sundays that we Alfie and I quickly learned were hellish for my mother. Uh, she'd uh, go to church with us. We'd take her to church and do the three-hour block and meetings, and then. Uh, we'd eat together, and and she'd write a letter or two, and read a little scripture, and and then she'd just get bored and stamp around the house, and nervous and moody and angry. And I'd say to her, I don't, I don't think Heavenly Father would care if the elderly woman did a little knitting on the Sabbath, but she wouldn't have any of that. That was that was work, and she wouldn't go to work on Sunday. Well, uh, I. That was right the year I was riding the backslider. I, I could see where I got my guilt from. My <laughs> mother, the, the God my mother believed in sold his blessings at a high price. And uh, the, I think more Mormons than willing to admit it feel that way. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's uh, probably where my guilt came from. <laughs> my mother well i think i think it uh i hope you take a little bit of pride in the book 25 years later i mean at least at least with our podcast the fact that john larson said that this was the book that he wanted to lead off with and that it's still resonate resonating with people nowadays i think i think that's kind of a really nice pat on the back for you professor well thank you hi uh I feel that I I worked it and reworked it till it was there's very little in it I would change, and I can't say that about a lot of things I've written and published. Idiom, uh, which is kind of a mix between Frank's way of thought and my own, uh, uh, and all I I I wouldn't change it. Uh, the truth is I I reread the book quite a bit. I don't mean from start to finish, but uh, when I'm in a a house 
of a friend or my daughter's house and a little time hanging on my hands, I'll pull the backslider off the bookshelf and uh, and browse in it. And I'll think, well, I, I did that all right. There's no reason to change that. <laughs> so that I, I, I feel like it's uh, artistically uh, the, the best thing I've done in terms of literary art. Well, I, I don't know, John, if you... Uh... If it's all right, if I go to to Juanita Brooks, yeah, let's talk about dear old Juanita. Okay, um, I just want to preface this by saying that I, I've been reading the book pretty heavily this week, and I have to say that I have such a deep respect. I I had a deep respect for Juanita Brooks before I was reading through your biography, but but reading through your biography, which I think is incredibly well written, and it's it's obviously w- well written enough to win some awards, but um, I just wanted to know, what are your overall thoughts of her as a woman, as a historian? I mean, if you could just kind of summarize your own personal thoughts of her, what would it be? See, the, I, I studied her life so closely. I had so much information on her that I, I, it'd be pretty hard to know her better without being... Uh, one of her children, or, or her, excuse me, or her husband, uh, I thought, and uh, and I did, and she held up. I uh, even her little foibles, which I came to know quite well, I I didn't reduce my respect and my my admiration for her. Uh, she's a very uh, homespun person. That people use that word in relation to her and. It's a good word for her, but uh, a plain person, uh, uh, both in appearance and in uh, her spoken words, but uh, 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 extraordinary personality and uh, one of my true heroes. Uh, and I admired her as a, uh, I admired her. Uh, in a superficial way, when I started the biogra- uh, the research for the biography, and r- rather than respecting her less, I respected her even more when I was through with it. Um, as I say, the the more the better I got to know her, the the more I respected her. Uh, the, though she's female and I'm male, and we're of different generations. Uh, uh, she she could have easily been my mother. Uh, the uh, the there are a lot of similarities between us that I've noted. Uh, that she's uh, uh, we're both from rural little rural towns. Uh, she's from Bunkerville, Nevada, near St. George, and me from Snowflake, and and uh, we're both raised. Uh, in large Mormon families, uh, my 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 extended family and her extended family are, are enormous, and we were we both picked up on family. I have a very strong value and sense of family, and she certainly did. Uh, and furthermore, uh, she's a a dissenter. Uh, among the Mormons, she she's a, a faithful Mormon. No question of being a faithful Mormon about her. Uh, 
uh, believed in Joseph Smith, etc., and the Book of Mormon, and uh, the, the structure of the church and all, and yet she uh, she could see that the church needed a lot of improvement. And while she wasn't a, uh, what you would call an ardent liberal Mormon, she was a liberal Mormon in her sense of history. She she wanted Mormons to look at their own history with a steady eye and not heroicize it. And uh, I, I respected and admired that in her, that the quality of her of her uh, uh, descent from the mainline. Uh, Mormon attitude and view was was one that I agreed with very very much. Uh, I, I've uh, so I, as you see, I, 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 what I'm adding up to here is that there are just so many similarities between us that uh, that uh, I I've held her as as I say one of one of my own true heroes. Yeah, when you. When you call her a dissenter, and and but yes, she's a loyal Mormon through and through, and she stayed faithful for the most part. But most of her life, if not the majority of her life, was defined by her conflict with her position in the church or her her stance against the brethren or um, what she wanted to say and what she stood for. Um, I think that's one of her defining aspects: is that she was. A person that was trying to make change, but still wanted to be loyal to the church. Would that be fair right. to say? Right. I, uh, she, uh, you know, she. Uh, my my bi- my biography of her is a, a, a very dense book. It's five hundred pages, and it's got fifteen hundred notes in it, etc. But. Uh, she, uh, if I wrote about the, had written about the, uh, what you might call the drama of her life, the conflict she got into uh, with the brethren and with the other relatives and other Latter-day Saints for having insisted on setting forth the details of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and uh, the scapegoating of John D. Lee, uh, as frankly and realistically as she did, uh, she uh, uh, the book I would have written about her would have been uh, maybe 150 pages long. Uh, one of my passions as I settled into my research on her, because there was such an abundance of material on her, was for once in my life, I, I wanted to do a research project that was total, and I was curious to see what uh, a, a person's, a famous person's whole life would be. And so uh, I, I portray her in her relationship to her, her children and her ward and her stake and her sister and sisters and casual people and she was a school teacher, and she was a housewife, and she was Relief Society president, uh, as well as an author, uh, and uh, uh, as well as a historian. So, uh, she, she uh, I, I, I fleshed it out in great, in 
considerable, great, I'd say, great detail, and and got criticized for it. A number of critics said that I had too much mundane detail in the book. Uh, there are other people that say to the contrary. They like that mundane detail, but it's it, it is mundane detail. It's the everyday doings uh, that uh, she. Uh, she, most of her letters, uh, uh, her writings about herself were largely not in diaries. They were in uh, on the carbons of letters she wrote to friends. She wrote copious letters uh, to all friends and strangers, anybody that wrote her. She'd answer them a rather, uh, usually a full-page letter or densely typed. And she'd always slip a carbon into her typewriter, and, and that carbon became the record of her life. And as I say, I I I, uh, I took a made nearly uh, fifteen hundred uh, uh, photocopies of the, of her letters. That was the basis of my material that that I wrote about. So. I got a lot of that everyday detail about her in the book. Well, along these lines, I, I, uh, I, I highlighted three ep- excerpts that I really enjoyed that you had quoted from her. And, and uh, if you'll humor me, I'm just going to – I want to read some of these. Um, one of the yeah. quotes is on page 177 of your biography of her. It says, her ward bishopric was selling subscriptions to the Deseret News to finance a movie projector. When the ward representatives dropped by, Juanita made clear her attitude toward the Republican orientation of the church-owned newspaper. Quote, anyway, when they came here, she wrote Morgan, I told them that I wanted to be a good member of the church, but I hadn't had a chance if I read the news. It made me so blankety mad that I lost even my standing as a Christian. I might add that I contributed $3 to the movie machine, but did not subscribe for the news. So now I'll I'll be counted as an apostate for sure. I think <laughs> I was I was laughing out loud when I read that. I think I think that's so great. <laughs> and in, in, in another one, this is on page one seventy one, just before that, it says, "In reference to anti Mormon literature, I am in fact in a state of apostasy, perhaps with many of the practices and teachings of our church. I simply cannot accept them and retain my intellectual independence, which I do try to maintain, and yet I am loyal to it." I think it is as much my church as it is J. Reuben Clark's or anyone else's. I think that kind of symbolizes what her stance was and why she stayed so faithful, even even with the direct conflict within her mind of the things that she'd been studying. That was such a great line. Good point. Yeah, yeah. But uh, my this last quote that I want to read. Um, and this is this is what I wanted to talk to you about about the the chapter even in your book that says the book that she was born to write about the Mountain Meadows massacre. Right. And she, she this is what she says before the Utah Academy in 1940. Quote: I didn't want to publish it in reference to the Mountain Meadows massacre. I didn't want to publish it because I didn't want to to be called in by the authorities, and I was afraid I would be. I don't want to be branded as an old apostate. I didn't want them to say to me, Sister Brooks, we command you in the name of the Lord to stop this, because I know I couldn't stop even if were even if were I so commanded. You know that the integrity that she had was just off the charts. I'm the conditions that she had 
to write that book, it's astounding to me. I mean, what are your, I mean, you obviously studied the Mount Meadows massacre and just even studying her life. Um, what, what are your thoughts about the, the integrity, um, her courage in writing such a book in, in that kind of a time frame and under that kind of pressure? Well, it, it, unquestionably enormous pressure not to. And she was frightened of excommunication. She expected that she would be or feared it greatly. And uh, as you read in, my, in the biography, she sought one way or another to get apostles or uh, other high-ranking church persons to endorse the book. It was almost uh, pathetic that she had to do that, and they didn't. Uh, but uh, the, the point there being she was seeking sh- uh, some kind of shelter from excommunication. She did fear it. Uh, and yet, she knew that the massacre had happened, and it, it struck her as a profound wrong to, to pull a blanket over it. Uh, there's another factor. The, she was being a native of Dixie, southern Utah, she resented the fact that the, the uh, large majority of Mormons who did know about the massacre, and particularly those clustered around Salt Lake City uh, and the center of the church, were very willing to... to put the onus of the massacre onto uh, the, the little handful of colonists down in southwestern uh, Utah. Uh, whereas, as Juanita, being a historian, knew very well, the spirit that provoked the southern Utah Mormons to commit the massacre, that spirit was born out of the the church-wide sufferings that went on in first Kirtland and then Missouri and then Illinois and then on the plains. The the people massacred in, in, uh, at Mountain Meadows were in reprisal uh, for all those deaths, persecutions, the driving out, the the terrible suffering of the saints on the plains, that was all in the background of that. And and one of you knew you can't just load that onto you can't just load that onto the people in southern Utah. Uh, uh, and furthermore, that's what's wrong with uh, with trying to with trying to make out that the uh, the victims of the massacre were the that it, it, it was just a, a, a totally dark and and criminal act on the part of people who are basically criminals. Uh, this is kind of the position that uh, that Bagley takes in his book on the the massacre. Um, uh, but the, when when you realize that it was vengeance bred in the 
that uh, um, America at large had uh, asked for, uh, uh, more or less provoked by driving the Mormons as as their neighbors had done out of Missouri and Illinois and and across the plains that uh, uh, the, the, you couldn't just characterize it as a as a, a dark uh, simple crime. It was an act of war, is what it was, and it, it was an evil. It was an evil in the way uh, warfare killing is an evil. Well, in in her book, she actually takes. Uh, quite a bit of offense or uh, quite a bit of attention is focused on it wasn't just John D. Lee and that he was a scapegoat, pure and simple. Um, that they, and the, you know, and then she explains the other individuals that were much more responsible down there, like uh, hate and and dame. Well, yeah, and now the churches, the the historians that the church has tolerated uh, and allowed to have at the materials uh, Turley and Walker is it uh, the, they're uh, they have uh, in fact put the blame more more uh, completely on the hate than they do on John D. Lee uh, that I'm talking about Ronald Walker and Richard Turley and their right. massacre Mountain Meadows, but uh, the the uh, <laughs> the truth still is that it was John D. Lee that went down and talked those people into putting down their guns and coming out. Yeah, he, he so, definitely. Yeah, he's definitely responsible. Well, I mean, that uh, he had the guts to do it, kind of singles him out, and yet, uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's the crime of a lot of people, and. Uh, the the victims didn't have uh, didn't ask for it and they weren't responsible for it but but uh, people like them in the east had, had prepared for it by the way they treated the Mormons yeah and what's and what's strange is in for Juanita Brooks she she doesn't place the blame of the massacre on Brigham Young even though she does she does note that. He did. He was kind of complicit in creating an atmosphere for that sort of thing to happen, but also does say that you know he didn't order it in in the book. Isn't that right? That's correct. Oh yeah. It, and my my own judgment would be that he he not dumb and he's not stupid. He wouldn't have ordered it. He, and he's not that bloodthirsty either. <laughs> uh, he had a lot to do with it having with its happening, uh, but of course, uh, circumstances had a lot to do with it. There was a U.S. Army marching toward Utah when the massacre happened. In fact, uh, the I guess the army was uh, was entering the valley, wasn't it? Yeah, or getting ready to. Yeah, getting ready to, and uh, and the the. Uh, when you consider that the Mormons deserted Salt Lake City and prepared the buildings for torching, uh, when the army did come in, it came into an empty city for a while before they came back. That uh, uh, the uh, even 
you know, you have to, you can understand Big and Young's particular pressures and all in the thing. Um, the, uh, but uh, Juanita, of course, uh, doesn't didn't blame Big and Young f- f- for ordering the massacre. She she blamed him for help setting up the atmosphere. But but she did she did con- uh, condemn him for what in her mind was was uh, 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 cold blooded trade off on letting John D. Lee take the rap for yeah. it. Uh, which is which is interesting to me because for Juanita Brooks, I mean she's she's more or less honored nowadays, even by the new historians that wrote that book, saying that you know she really paved the way for their book and and for Will Bagley's book and and really all the other books that have been done on the massacre. I mean she really she really broke ground and and really set the standard for it. Um, and it's interesting to me that she. She was kind of blacklisted back in the day by the church and some of the fellow members of the church for saying what she said, even though she was just stating the truth. Yeah, well, I, 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 I suppose that a, a lot of Latter-day Saints would feel like you know, truths, not all truths should be said. <laughs> yeah. she, was, she was told that quite often you know the old even though my neighbor's got this uh, ugly lump on his nose I don't tell him about it <laughs> I guess that's true yeah but, so uh, the church the, the little the big flap over the, the reinstatement of John D. Lee made added a, a lot to the drama of her life as I say in my biography of her the uh, uh, probably the climactic year of her life was uh, 1961 when she, when that uh, uh, reinstatement took place, and uh, and she uh, insisted on publishing it in the, the biography she was finishing and preparing to publish at that very moment, the biography of John D. Lee. Yeah, let, let's that that moment is integral in her life and also in your book. It is the kind of the climatic point of things because that was when the pressure cooker from the church really got hot. Now, remind you know, go ahead and correct me when I'm wrong here. This, but isn't it true that uh, John D. Lee he got excommunicated um, without a trial, and then he was he was also executed <laughs> for you know he was the scapegoat for the massacre. And then John Deasley's family, and this is in the 50s or the 60s, they petitioned the First Presidency of the Church to try to get his um, records redone through the temple, to get his temple work redone. Is that right? Correct. And then this is where things got a little crazy, is because they kind of wanted to do that privately or not, not let the public know about it because, you know, obviously some of the... Right problems that that would create is that the church is reinstating John D. Lee more or less. And sure enough, well, they, they did, right? They did, they, they did, did approve and, it. And I think it was because of Juanita's book, which had 
been out for 10 years, uh, 11 years when the reinstatement took place. And because even though John D. Lee was guilty of what he was accused of, he wasn't the only person that was guilty. And Absolutely. And if you're going to uh, punish one, you need to punish them all. And I think the church took the sensible view of it as well. As far as we human beings are concerned, let's uh, let's reinstate him, and then we just leave it in God's hands. What how, how God's going to deal with him uh, and the rest of us? And so uh, that's right. They uh, the 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 Lee family uh, petitioned uh, the 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 first presidency. At, to reinstate John D. Lee, and and uh, that spring or early summer of 1961, that it happened, and the David O. McKay was president of the church, and they they uh, assigned a Apostle Stapley, who was uh, uh, from Arizona, and and in touch with uh, the extensive Lee family down in Arizona. Uh, he uh, he was the apostle that was kind of the the lead man on it, and and he was told to inform form the Lee family of the of the reinstatement, but to ask them to just keep it a, a, a quiet family affair. Uh, well, uh, Juanita, the instant she learned about it, she she wanted to but just publish the fact of the reinstatement at the end of her biography. And I know the reason she wanted to do it. It was a vindication of of her having written the the book about the massacre in the first place, uh, meaning that even though it was the truth, it hadn't been welcome. And she'd had a, an awful lot of uh, uh, rubbing on it the eleven years since it had appeared, and so uh, she was very desirous of. Of having it there, and uh, when it was learned that she was thinking of doing that, she she approached the 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 leaders of the Lee family. The, the Apostle Stapley, of course, forbade her, and uh, uh, he uh, wasn't she kind of threatened. Well, he he had her come to the to the his office. She she went she met him at uh, in his office in in Salt Lake City, and and uh, they talked it over. And she tried to persuade him that, that uh, the Lord wanted that reinstatement in her biography because uns unforeseen obstacles had prevented it being published up to this point. And she kind of had a testimony that the Lord wanted it in there, and Apostle Stapley slapped the table and says, it is of the devil, meaning her testimony. <laughs> so the, uh, she, uh, uh, she told the story later that she looked him in the eye and, and said she had a, her testimony was as good as his. <laughs> In fact, I heard that, that got me going on the 
on the autobiography on the biography because uh, I was at uh, in the special collections library at Weber State when she spoke in 1973, and uh, she told about the episode of this very episode, and she said it that way. I looked him in the eye. She said, and I said, my. Uh, I know the will of the Lord in this matter as well as you do, brother. And I, I admired her. That That's what made me read the Mountain Meadows Massacre and the biography of John D. Lee. Uh, uh, but my research convinced me that that uh, it wasn't she, she wasn't nearly that defiant in reality. Uh, I think she did tell him that she'd had a testimony, but he, he slapped the table and said it was of the devil and and then uh, the, the Apostle Stapley told the, the Lee family in Arizona if they didn't put pressure on Juanita that President McKay was going to rescind the, the uh, reinstatement. Uh, and that struck Juanita as totally fallacious. She, she thought of that she might get excommunicated for doing it, but then undo the, rescind the reinstatement uh, seemed a whole, entirely unlikely. But at any rate, the, the Lee family flew her to Phoenix uh, at their expense, and she spent a terrible Saturday there uh, listening to person after person bear testimony that uh, that. They, they were not to publish. She shouldn't uh, publish the reinstatement, and but she ended up promising that she would not uh, publish the reinstatement in the uh, books that the, the edition the family had ordered about a thousand copies, and she didn't. But. And she left them feeling that the second edition, where she said she would publish it, was going to be comfortably, comfortably in the future. But it wasn't. When she got home, she uh, immediately wrote her publisher in California and said, uh, uh, go right on from the the first edition and and print the second edition. So the second edition, though it's marked 1962, it was actually published within a few weeks of when the first <laughs> one was published. So she but, held her obligation, but just put a sh- very short time yeah. frame there. Would, would you s- got home, Will's diary says how she came home, said she'd had a pleasant time and things were okay uh, at all. Uh, and you knew very well from her own the diary she was keeping herself at that time that she was just torn asunder emotionally by having to go to Phoenix and take that battering, <laughs> which she did. But she still didn't back off on publishing it. Would you say that, uh, I mean, you can't exactly slap a Disney sort of ending to her story, can you? We, I well, mean... You can't say that you know all this happened and then she lived happily ever after. I mean, she was, she was, sort of ostracized even from some of her yeah. ward members. Isn't that correct? Even to oh yeah, well oh I think it. I think she she lost a a, a lot of status in uh, in St. George and it, it hurt her. 
she was she had a sense of her ostracism, a strong sense. She wasn't called on to to uh, to teach lessons or called to positions in the church. Uh, so uh, yeah, it, it affected her uh, her status enormously in St. George. However, uh, elsewhere she she became kind of famous and uh, an icon. Uh, you know, she was invited to uh, to talk in uh, dozens and dozens, hundreds of places uh, over a twenty-year period or thirty, and she would go if. People wouldn't wouldn't pay her. She'd go at her own expense from uh, Idaho to California. Uh, she made numerous public appearances, big groups and little groups, and they'd tell them this part of the story or that part of the story, uh, so that uh, it it really spread the 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 whole saga of the Mountain Meadows massacre. Uh, it was probably she did as much by her oral presentations as the book did itself. Yes, I think yeah, defined her verbally and with her yeah. writings. Didn't didn't you also say that you'd met her in real life? Well, yeah, a number of times I'd I'd met her briefly and casually and shook her shook her hand a time or two. And my daughter, <laughs> we last time we saw her at a uh, 1976 uh, Mormon History Association conference in St. George. Uh, my 11-year-old daughter went to a restroom and got a paper towel and came out and got Juanita's uh, autograph on it. I still have that. <laughs> oh, wow. Her autograph on a paper towel. So uh, my daughter was impressed with her. So what what about today? Um, has has her name generally been redeemed, or is she still blacklisted, or or uh, you know among the faithful? Well, I don't I don't think she's blacklisted. Uh, I think uh, that precisely because of her book and her, the church is at, at ease. It's come to terms with the massacre. It, it, it's not. It doesn't avoid confronting it anymore the then uh, uh, the evidence of that I think is the church sponsored monuments there at the site itself uh, President Heakley uh, was very instrumental in getting both the monument that's there above the the hill uh, looking down onto the site and then the the burial site itself has been turned into a uh, a, a really nice monument, and the church is, owns that ground, and the church is caretaker there of it, and, and I think that's appropriate. Uh, and uh, it signifies, I think, it's it is a kind of confession on the part of the church. I don't. Some people want the church to make a public statement of apology, but. Uh, I don't think it w- would, and, and I think that monument, the site now itself, the monuments are a kind of public statement of contrition on, on the part of the 
church for it. And it's appropriate, and I think that comes precisely because of Juanita. Uh, if she lived to see it, she'd have been stunned and astounded, but but I I think it's it's just true. She she's the reason it happened. Uh, and in a way, there's nothing in the whole history of the church that, more tragic than that massacre. Not even the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, which uh, Joseph was a hero, and that massacre was a, a, a blot upon the character of of. Mormons collectively, and uh, and so in a sense it it was a, a tragic incident, more tragic. Uh, I think that anything that's happened to Mormons, is, is, as far as their sense, collective sense of being a single people is concerned. I think you did uh, a whole lot of good by honoring her and her memory by writing that that book. So I commend you for that. Well, I'm certainly glad I did it, and she is certainly worthy of it. As I say, she's one of my true heroes, the person I've modeled on and and kind of used to rely on to bolster my own character and personality. And it, and as far as uh, the backslider, it's obviously 25 years running, and it's still having a, a pretty big impact on on people and especially the Mormon culture. Um, have you come up with any new words for masturbation then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, <laughs> well, you know, it's not my fault. It was old brought those up. <laughs> well, Levi, you're, you're truly a, a living legend among um, Mormon historians and it's been a, a great honor on my part, to, to share uh, well, with you. So. Yes, I, I really appreciate you spending the time, and it's it's been great to uh, kind of pick your brain and, and dive into some of the research that you've done. I really appreciate right. it. Thanks again to Levi Peterson for joining us on the show, and also to John Larson for accompanying me for this discussion. Just remember that the discussion continues at mormonexpression.com. You can email us at, at mail at mormonexpression.com. Thanks.